Welcome to What's on Your Souls, a relational podcast where you can relax and enjoy conversation, inspiration, encouragement, and motivation in a judgment-free space. Don't continue to drag around that emotional debris. Here's what's next on this episode. I did a training this past week, and this one gentleman, he was in his 40s, and he told a story about um, when he was in first grade, how excited he was to start school. So he's this brilliant little brown boy, and I think his family had just moved to a new neighborhood, an affluent neighborhood. They put him in a private school. And from the first day of school until the last day of school in first grade, his first grade teacher never looked at him. She never called him by name. So now he's 40-something years old. But the fact that that left fingerprints on him, that when he talked about it two days ago in front of 40 people that he still cried, those are the kind of things that stop me in my tracks. Have a seat on the porch and let's examine what's on your souls. Hello, this is Mia, and we'd like to welcome all of you back to the What's on Your Soul podcast, which is a figurative and relational podcast, just about all the things that we have on the bottom of our souls and that we bring to the threshold of entryways and um, bring into the spaces of other human beings. And the porch provides a safe space to sit down, take off your shoes, turn them upward, and look at them and say, just where did this come from? Where have I been? Why am I carrying this around? Does it serve me well? Does it infect other people? Is it toxic or dysfunctional? Or is it joy-filled and life-giving? So it is such a privilege for us to have you here. We are about to do a part two with Dr. Joy Bell. Hey, Joy. Hi, Mia. How you doing? I am doing well. We've had a good time so far. We have. I'm so glad to have an extended... um, I'm trying to pick my words carefully because just full disclosure... So Dr. Bell told me that she's had time to listen to all the previous podcasts and she has taken offense to the fact um, that I describe (laughs) almost everybody that comes to the porch is like meaningful in my life and um, a good friend. She does. I mean, she hears it, but she doesn't really like it because she wants to be exceptional in that way. And she is exceptional. But. So I'm just trying to figure out the right way to say this. So this is my wise, what did puppy, what did she say? How did she tell us to describe her? (laughs) (laughs) How did I tell you to describe me? I got you, puppy, what what did she say? I don't know. This is my brilliant, charming, uh, life-giving friend. And so I'm so glad to, and she's done an extended time with me on the porch today. So I feel very honored. Thank you, Joy, for doing that. Your life-giving friend says you're welcome. Thank you so much. So the reason we're doing a part two extended is because our first part, Joy and I sat in talking about education and the pandemic and the social component, social, emotional, mental component of children and parents and educators as they are being ushered into a new normal and all the different facets of that and how does one attend to that from an administrative level or from a leadership level when the people that you're making decisions about are not in the room. I'm going to keep making my Hamilton reference because I think it's very impactful that we don't get to see how the sausage is made. We don't make the menu. We don't pick the venue. We don't decide where we sit, but someone has said, we've got you. How do you trust that dynamic? 
But um, that then moves us into this part two, where we are now going to talk about another thing that is on the waterline or surface of our world, and that is that matters dealing with race. And um, so when we come back, we're just going to talk about children and race and education. We will be right back. More conversation on the way from What's On Your Souls with Mia. In the meantime, if you have a comment, log on with your laptop or smartphone to miaembro.com. That's M-I-A-M-B-R-O-H.com. From the audio player, click the leave a comment link. Let your voice be heard. Now, back to more of What's On Your Souls. Okay, we're back on the porch. Dr. Bell, you ready? I'm ready. We're just going to jump into this one. There's so many things that could be said at this moment, but I'm going to implement self-control and stay on the matter at hand. So we're going to talk about race and children. Because not that that is anything new, uh, and we understand how children move through developmental stages and how they learn, internalize messages, and then solidify those, and those become the schema that they then use everything that... um, that they make decisions from, for the most part. The messages they hear about themselves, their worthiness, their value, what they hear from the media, what they hear from their families, conversations, all the voices that are in their head, and, of course, teachers. Um, I did a training this past week, and I had a gentleman. I was training an organization, and we were kind of doing that who's in the room before we moved through it and had people just speak their truth. And this one gentleman, he was in his 40s. And he told a story about um, when he was in first grade, how excited he was to start school, excited about what kind of pencils he was going to buy, just the right pencils and the paper, kind of just all over his mom. Like, it has to be this. And I get that. I appreciate. I love a good school supply. buy. That's like my sweet spot. So he's this brilliant little brown boy. And I think his family had just moved into a new neighborhood, an affluent neighborhood. They put him in a private school first grade. So he's 40 something now. So that tells you the timeline. And he said that in uh, first grade, he was excited. He got there, laid his clothes out the night before. And from the first day of school until the last day of school of first grade, his first grade teacher never looked at him. She never called him by name. Um, she never affirmed anything about him and never gave him direct eye contact. So when she gave a directive or asked a question, she might look over him or to the side of him, but she never gave him what he most wanted. So now he's 40-something years old. He has a pretty significant job uh, as a profession and uh, for all intents and purposes, seems like a phenomenal human being in his goodness. But the fact that that left fingerprints on him, that when he talked about it two days ago in front of 40 people that he still cried, those are the, the kind of things that stop me in my tracks, right? Because it does matter and it does make a difference. And when people tell you to get over it, you can push through it. You can close it off. You can box it up. You can put it away. But it is what it is. It leaves an indelible. That's one of the fingerprints that have touched you to be a first grade teacher. So I think of all my years of in education and um, how that would be totally unacceptable to the parents that I have served and how they, we would have a problem. And so I think it's important that we create a room and a space that talks about racism in children and what educators are commissioned with knowing and how they are educated and moving through it in a way that 
edifies the child and keeps them intact. I just would love to hear your voice behind that, Dr. Bill. Yeah, this is definitely um, a difficult one for me, the conversation. Um, I've had many experiences and I've sat at many tables, um, but the issue of race, it doesn't matter when it's brought up. It, it has the same feeling inside of the room, whether it's uh, the participants in the room decide not to speak. Um, the participants in the room may say, I don't, I don't know anything about that. I, I, I love all people. Um, there's, there's just some things that'll come up similarly in spaces because it's, it's an uncomfortable space. Um, it's not a space that I, I don't love you, Joy, um, but it's, do I recognize you fully as a human being and a, and, um, and a value in this company or at this table, at, in these conversations with your experiences, um, those sorts of things. So yeah, this is, this is definitely a challenge. And I think in education, Mia, we are presented now more than ever. I feel, um, at least in my lifetime, I'm certain, you know, a lot of times we feel like our lifetimes are special, but in my lifetime, um, and, and I'm, you know, almost near that century mark. This, we have an opportunity right now in the world, but also with, in, with education and also with children. So uh, a couple of things come to mind as I hear you speak. First of all, for us to honor Congressman John Lewis, who passed this week, who made a lifetime. Yes. His life and his um, passion <clears throat> were intertwined, which is always a gift when you spend a lifetime doing what you love. I understand the beauty of that and the gift of that, um, but also how taxing that can be because you're always trying to create room for that to be seen. And so for us just to honor him and uh, a life and a legacy that is unmarked and uncharted and unparalleled and to thank him for giving his life so that we can live in some of the ways that we live. So I heard you say it always is an uncomfortable like when it comes into the room, although we've been talking about this for joy, since you and I have been yes. on earth, right? Yes. What do you think the discomfort is? So I know that as educators, what is most important is that you create spaces where young minds feel like you've anticipated their arrival. Mm -hmm. You've been waiting for them. Mm -hmm. You have set the scene. It's like when you come here and I'm like, I want this to be comfortable for Joy. Joy, is this a comfortable temperature? What would you like to drink? Do you have what you need? Because I want you to know that I see you, I value you, I value your time, and I know what you're here for, but I want to take good care of you. So it's so much uh, more productive to anticipate a human being's arrival than to react to it, right? Because you will pick up my reaction to you. You'll be like, oh, she didn't expect me. Does she even really want me here? What is, was she busy? Is she too busy for me? Versus me opening the door and jumping and saying, I couldn't wait for you to get here. That's the way I feel every school should feel for a child and every teacher should be waiting on a child. So what do you do with the matter of race and diversity within a school system? I think it depends on where you are. Um, I have served in schools with predominantly um, African-American populations. I've served in, in terms of socioeconomic, middle class. I've served in schools that were upper class. Um, and so the demographics across those different groups can be significantly different. And the need for deeper conversations, significantly different. Um, in the schools where they're predominantly um, African-American children and teachers, there was one level of conversation, maybe 
um, just educating about other cultures. But in a school where there are predominantly African-American children and predominantly Caucasian teachers, then there was another conversation that would happen. Uh, in, an, in another space, there's um, the socioeconomic piece is, is changed, but maybe the demographic still doesn't represent it, all the cultures. So you may have a few or a lot of people of color. And so th there's another conversation. I, th I think it's, for me, it's been different conversations in different educational spaces of which conversation, not if we have it, but what aspect of the conversation needs to be addressed. Dependent dependent upon who shows up in the room. Yes. So I believe, and I would love to hear your voice on that. There's one thing to have an expectation, right? So we talked about this a little bit off the grid. You can tell someone to love someone, but if that person doesn't know what love is, right? That's like telling your child to go clean. I don't know if you've experienced this. I did with Hayden and Donovan. They're now young adults. So I'm, I'm going to assume I'm free to say this, tell the story. I probably am not. There probably will be a consequence, but we're good. So when you tell your child, like, go clean your room, and then they go away, they go to the room, and you hear music, and you hear bumping around and jumping, and you think they must be doing great things in there. Maybe they're rearranging while they're cleaning. Maybe they're, you know, you're just full of possibility of what could be happening. And then three hours later, when you open the door, it looks like a bomb has gone off. And you're just like, I thought we were cleaning the room. I thought you were cleaning the room. Well, I was cleaning the room. So then you go, hmm, there's a moment. Well, my definition of clean and your definition of clean must be very, very different. And I have to take ownership of the fact that maybe I didn't demonstrate to you or get in there with you and do it with you and practice it. So then there's one thing to have an expectation of how educators will move in this matter of race. And then there's another thing when it comes to the inspection, right? And the reflection and the introspection about what is mine to own? What am I bringing in here that I'm projecting on the children that I'm teaching? So is there any room for you as an administrator to have those types of conversations overall with all educators before you release them into the classroom? I feel like there is. Um, I feel like there's, there's again... There's the opportunity to have the conversation. Depending on the space, there needs to be a certain skill set to have that conversation with that group of people. And when I say that group of people, I don't mean white people or any sort of, I mean what that group is bringing to the table, their experiences, their own traumas, their own biases, their own history. Um, I think it's, it's naive to assume that the conversation goes the same every time. Um, you really have to take, or this is how I move. I really have to take stock of where I am and, and you know, sort of give it, get a temperature check, autopsy report, whatever you want to call it, um, to figure out what's going on with, with this group or inside of this culture. And then I can then sort of know how to move next. So is there space? Absolutely. But Mia, you know, like I know, that there's sometimes different degrees of space, depending on what space you're in. Um, and so it just, it just depends. Yes, the I believe there is an opportunity. I don't know that everyone's ready to have the conversation, and I don't know that everyone knows how to. Um, I think we talked in one of our other 
uh, porch moments, just we bring so many different things to the table and biases and lenses. Um, and I've learned that sometimes the other person just wasn't aware, not even negligently, negligent, not, but anyway, you it's know what I mean? They just don't, they don't know. It's not even a just, I don't want to know. It's just, they haven't had the experiences. So over the last couple of years, I've had conversations with educators where they said, I, I just didn't see it, but now I see it. Now someone's had the conversation. Blind, but now I see. Yeah. So I think, um, yes, there is space, Mia. Okay. But I think whomever is in that space and is having those conversations, needs, they need to be aware. That's what I would say. Okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to come right back. We're going to jump right back in. More conversation on the way from What's On Your Souls with Mia. In the meantime, if you have a comment, log on with your laptop or smartphone to miaembro.com. That's M-I-A-M-B-R-O-H.com. From the audio player, click the leave a comment link. Let your voice be heard. Now, back to more of what's on your souls. This is Mia. We're back on the porch with Dr. Joy Bell. How are you doing, Joy? I'm doing well, Mia. Okay, so we're going to jump right back in because we know we, or we're going to have time constraints on this. So we talked about, you said, yes, there is room. And I love uh, giving the analogy of we're all in the same, we're all in the house, right? But if we're all standing near different windows, then we all have different perspectives, correct? So if you're, you're sitting here with, my, with me on the porch right now, and we're looking out a certain set of windows and we see things. We see a pool and a waterfall and trees or whatever. But if you're looking out at another set of windows, then you see something else. And that is still truth, right? Your truth is, can be true, although it's not another person's truth. And making room for that um, seems to be a challenge for us because we're like, no, I see a pool and a waterfall and that's what there is. Right. But if you look on this other side of the, of this house where we're sitting, you're going to see a driveway and you see a street this way. And over here, you're going to see something else. The reconciliation of those perspectives and the ability to be a perspective taker seems to be where we get kind of caught up in the weeds because our need to be right overwhelms the clarity and the truth that there are many windows in one house. But you're talking about the care and keeping of children again. So we talk about everything that's going on in the world, Joy. We talk about George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, um, Breonna Taylor. Taylor, all the things that we have seen, right? That Seen and unseen. So we know what we know now because we've seen it. It's like bodies rising to the waterline. But we know there's plenty below the waterline that will never be excavated. So how do you then make that part of an educational system that has deficits in it, that doesn't provide complete history, that doesn't um, give space for recognition of error and flaw, but still ability to become and move towards greater, right? Because the truth is we can be great and greatly flawed. We are all at the same time. You don't have to take one away from the other. How do you do that with small people, Dr. Bell? And how do you vet educators to know what they're dragging in on the bottom of their souls that are then going to be toxic and leave debris and residual on young children? 
Mia, and that was 26 questions. I'm, I'm gonna, sorry. I, I, try I'm gonna, to, I try to keep it under 22. You do, you do, you do, you do. How do I vet? Um, trying to give you different points of entry. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I have conversations and interviews. I ask questions that seem very educational, but they're more human. They're more, I'm really good at questions. And, and so sometimes I don't think people realize that they're answering a different question um, that then seems to, that I'm asking. And so I, you, in terms of vetting people, you can really get a sense. And I also just have a good sense about people generally. Um, you may say one thing, but there's something behind, uh, what you're saying that I just, uh, I said that I don't know what it is quite, but there's something I don't trust about it. So it, I don't know if that's fully in terms of race or reconciliation, those kinds of different things, but I have a good sense of people um, in their infancy stages and also those who are in veteran stages, um, that there's just different things that'll show up in, when you're talking with them and watching them and calling in individuals and asking questions. Um, in terms of the little people, of, of which it's just what I love and what I do, I mean, I feel like it has to start with the teachers. I really do, and, and having open conversations, but giving them a safe space to have them because you can't just jump into culturally responsive uh, information and literature and there's not a, a foundation of understanding and a safe place for them to share their perspective. Um, I had a friend of mine even just recently shared and she said, Joy, you know, we were... Uh, Caucasian friend, we were integrated into a, a, a African American school. I was bullied, you know. I was treated. You know, we were we were the minority in that, and I thought, well, I had never thought about that. You know, how did that happen? How what were your experiences? And was clear clearly still moved and hurt by those experiences that she had, and it was sort of a flipped situation. So I think my perspective is that we need to offer everyone as much as we can education because that's what we're talking about teachers those who have their hand on those children an opportunity to speak a safe place to speak um and also again uh, this is a foundation of what we do here and who we are here building a culture um that has you know not only they're having the conversations i had a meeting a couple of weeks ago and i said listen when a child raises their hand and says, well, well, I don't, my mama said, da, 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 and teacher goes, well, we don't talk about that. You talk to your parents about that. No, no, that right there is a teachable moment appropriately with a kindergartner or a third grader or a seventh grader, but taking those moments um, and having, oh, that's a really good question. Well, let, let me tell you about this. Or does anyone else feel that way? Not to, to push that stuff under the rug because children are going to ask questions. It's what we do when they ask them and if we know how to respond. So I think a lot of times teachers may not respond, not because they don't love that child or don't want to. I don't think sometimes they have the lens to respond. And so I feel as though we need to provide that, not assume that they don't like this child of color, you know, their races, whatever that is, but maybe they just don't know how to engage. And so then they elect not to engage. Um, and so how I do that again is just, you have to set an opportunity or many, many, and many, and many, and many, and many of them. This is not a one-time conversation, a one professional development at the beginning of a year. And we come back at the, at the end of the year. This is an ongoing conversation, um, that requires trust. 
It requires a safe space. It requires non-judgment. It requires training. Um, it requires a lot, Mia. So I think, I think we've done a disservice in the field of education for teachers and said they just don't do it or they just don't understand. They don't care. Well, if you give them a professional development in August and never talk about it again or never want to know how that's going to or, or set an expectation of how that's going to show up in their day-to-day -day curriculum um, and application of those experiences and validation, then of course you're not going to see um, any fruit from that one professional development you had with them in August. Um, these are years and years and years of experiences that we're all bringing to the table. I'm bringing them, they're bringing them, biases. There's racism on every side, you know, um, and so we have to give them um, and bring in those trained people to be able to walk through those difficult conversations. And understanding the relevancy of that and the impact of that. I think one of the things that you said that stood out to me is uh, on the respon uh, responsible end of educators is to own what they don't know but that's part of vulnerability mm -hmm. and it's hard to be vulnerable when you don't feel safe mm -hmm. because if that is um related to incompetence instead of opportunity to learn right so it's all in the paradigm that that rest in what i cling to is what you said and what i know to be true is if you if a, an educational institution does not invest in bringing someone in that is consistently walking it's the underwater stuff, right? The emotional, mental component of what's going on, then they just don't do it at all, right? Because, and then what I want to say about that is it comes out, it'll either come out appropriately in a way that you've created a space with intention saying this is who we are. That's part of transformational leadership, right? That it then permeates the entire tapestry of your organization versus being always in reactive mode, mm -hmm. bringing someone in to check off a box, um, rather than saying, we're talking about transformation that will not only affect you in your work as educators in your love, but it, it ripple effects. It will be for your family and for other people that we're gifting you with this. Uh, but I think it's a new concept. I've seen some corporations that have started to do this and missed what we're doing. And I've had the honor of being invited into those spaces. But for schools, I do want to say, if we could say anything, this is what transformation is about. You can't have the world tilted in this way and not attend to that. So I appreciate that. What is your advice for parents that are, um, when all this is going on in the world pertaining to racism and then they're sending their child to school where, well, you know, where everybody just repeats. They already repeat things like, right, right. Like my mama didn't cook last night. My daddy didn't cook last night. They said they're on hiatus that we just gonna have to eat cereal for four. You know, they come mm -hmm. and tell us. They do. Right. So, you know, they have opinions to share about all that's going on in the world. Where's your advice to parents with their children in these conversations? <clears throat> my advice is to have the conversation first with them. The conversations, the many convers, many M I N I, um, because race is just, it's a lot. So um, I've had those conversations with our children more this year than ever, Kedron and I, my husband and I, um, <clears throat> and it's it's a lot to take in. And you know, you hear a thirteen year old says, "What? What? That doesn't make mama. That's just what." And, and, and those conversations are tough, but I want to have those, and my husband would like to have those with our children so that they understand when they get in spaces, then this is what you need to do. 
this is who you need to, to, to tell if something happens. Uh, I think it's just those, so from, a, from an African-American parent perspective, have the conversations, but then also from every parent's perspective. <clears throat> we cannot pretend that all of these different things are not going on and that it's someone else's problem and not mine because my skin is a different color. Um, as long as we are all human beings and we're all surviving in this world together and living and prayerfully thriving, then we need to have the conversations with our children. So that's my advice. Um, honestly, I have different conversations than some of my friends may have with their children. Um, different conversations with my, my son than I would have with my daughter for all those different reasons that we understand. But I think when children, you know, children come into a space, they need to, to know how to interface with different people um, and have difficult conversations. And then when they come into the space where they're with another adult for seven hours of their day, then we want to make sure that that adult is equipped to then extend, to validate, to all of those different things. And does that make sense? So that's sort of what I would, that would be my recommendation to parents. Don't be afraid to have the conversations because just as, you know, that teenage girl and boy are going to have the conversations that you're frightened of with their friends, so will these children have these conversations about race and, and why are people protesting and, and why is my friend brown and should she be able to come with us? Although they're going to talk about it on the playground at lunch, have the conversations with your, with your children age appropriate, but don't let that be a conversation that is led by someone that does not know them, does not love them, does not feel the same ways that you feel. So, I mean, that's sort of, that's again, that's how we move Mia. Um, and that's what I would recommend parents. There's no way that I would recommend a parent sending a child of any skin color back into school. You have the pandemic, but you also have racial unrest. The world is unrest and just say, go back to school and it's time to learn math. There's a lot happening. And so just as we are not, we're gonna wipe down with Clorox, everything because of Corona, what are we doing in terms of the racial um, disruptions that are happening in the world and those conversations with our children? Never enough time with you, Dr. Bell. Never enough. I've already asked you to extend yourself on this porch today, and I'm so appreciative. This conversation is ongoing, and I think that that's what we've modeled, is there's no way to sum up the importance of this conversation in one fatal swoop. It's not Mia. Mm -mm, it's an ongoing. And we continue to learn about ourselves and about the people that we serve. And I think what is most important is that we make room for that, knowing that we don't know everything and that we are ever learning and growing and to run around the house and look through different windows uh, and take on different perspectives. I'm so grateful for you. Thank you again for being here. I know this will not be our last time. Dr. Bell and I are so uh, grateful to anyone who has invested their time and their attention towards us. And we hope that we have offered something that is relevant and life-giving. Um, but most of all, our prayer for you at all times is that you find uh, rest for your souls. Thank you. As we bring another episode to a close, we want to thank you. And check out our website at miaembro.com. That's M-I-A. MBROH.com. Leave us a message or feedback. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast to receive the latest episodes. And join us next time as we discuss what's on your souls.